Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 223 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for another interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, I'm joined by Burke O'Halloran, creator of Rockwell Vermouth. Not only is Burke an accomplished winemaker, but he also has taken the plunge into the world of fortified and aromatized wines. And his journey through this Artemisia-scented landscape will be the subject of this episode's interview. But before we start talking about grape varietals, American botanicals, and Solera-aged flavor extracts, let's take a quick pause so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Chrysanthemum. To make it, you'll need one ounce Benedictine, which is a French liqueur, kind of in the same vein of chartreuse, a little bit darker, a little bit less complex, but nonetheless very spicy and delicious. Two ounces of Rockwell Dry Vermouth, which we will sample later on in this episode, and three dashes of absinthe. In today's measures, this would look something like one or two bar spoons, depending on how deep the bowl of your spoon is, and certain chrysanthemum formulations recommend using an absinthe rinse in the glass. So really, you're going to be using a small amount of absinthe here, and it's up to you how small small means. Combine these ingredients in a mixing beaker with ice, stir until the ingredients are well chilled and properly diluted, then strain into a stemmed cocktail glass, garnish with an expressed orange twist, and enjoy. The chrysanthemum stands at the intersection of pre-prohibition and prohibition era cocktails. I say this because it seems to first appear in Hugo Enslin's 1916 book, Recipes for Mixed Drinks. But the recipe I just read to you is taken from Harry Craddock's epic 1930 Savoy cocktail book. Importantly for this episode, the Craddock recipe is also the one listed on the Rockwell Vermouth website. Now, let's look at those dates, 1916 versus 1930, for the two definitive or definitive-ish recipes for this drink. That's roughly four years before Prohibition is enacted in the case of 1916, and roughly three years before it is repealed in the case of 1930. Enslin was a New York bartender, whereas Craddock was based in London, which explains why this cocktail just managed to sneak through a very coincidental rift in the historical hedgerow. If you were in New York before Prohibition, you could reliably source stuff like vermouth and imported French liqueurs like Benedictine. However, as soon as Prohibition kicked off, not only was bartending in the open forbidden, it was also a lot harder to get your hands on old world ingredients, even if you were doing it illegally. So it's lucky for the chrysanthemum that the recipe seems to have made its way to British soil in time for Harry Craddock to popularize it in a place where all the ingredients were still very much available. 
Otherwise, it might be listed among an even more obscure cohort of drinks that languished in obscurity due to the unfortunate timing of our nation's poorly executed ban on alcohol. Today, you'll see some bartenders looking to add a bit of brightness to the chrysanthemum with a squeeze of citrus, but if you're looking to recreate a more authentic version, simply stir a little longer so that the dilution can cut the sweetness and allow you to experience the rapturous aromas of the vermouth and benedictine dancing sensually with the expressed orange oils. It's a relatively simple build, but the flavor profile is complex in a way that you're not likely to forget. So, now that you're all set up with a drink that straddles two of the most important tectonic plates in cocktail history, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this fragrant, vine-ripened deep dive with Burko Halloran, creator of Rockwell Vermouth, some of the topics we discuss include... How Burke worked his way up the supply chain over the years, dabbling first in hospitality education, becoming a sommelier working in the off-premise world, and eventually launching his own wine and vermouth brands. What it means to make an American vermouth, and how that journey incorporated a unique botanical called Artemisia californica, a.k.a. California sagebrush. Why there's not a lot of information available about vermouth recipes in the historical literature, and what that meant for Burke's research and development process. Then, of course, we conduct an in-depth tasting of the Rockwell Sweet and Dry Vermouths. We talk about the uniquely American grape varietal used for the wine base, as well as some of the innovative Solera-aged extracts used to aromatize the end products. Along the way, we explore Burke's multi-seasonal approach to his sagebrush sourcing, the implementation of various dried fruit extracts as flavorants, what you can learn when subjecting the world's most popular vermouth brands to advanced laboratory testing, and much, much more. If you're a longtime listener to this show, you know vermouth. Doubtless, you've got your favorites. Here's the thing, though. Rockwell Vermouth retails at about $15 for a 750 ml bottle. And it's not a mass market entry from a huge brand. It's a highly thoughtful project into which a great deal of time and research has been poured. In this interview... Burke is the first to admit that these bottles won't be universal replacements for stuff like Carpano Antica or Koki or Dolan Dry in some of your favorite cocktails, but they do a lot of things remarkably well. They're extremely compelling and flavorful to my palate, and at the price point, I just don't think you can go wrong experimenting. So I hope you'll pick up a bottle of Rockwell Vermouth directly from their website or from your favorite liquor store, but until then... Please enjoy this sage-scented interview with Burko Halloran, creator of Rockwell Vermouth. Burke, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks. All right, so kick us off as we always do here. Who are you? What do you do? Yeah, so uh, my name's Burko Halloran. I'm uh, for today the uh, founder of Rockwell Vermouth, but I, I also have a company called Poor Management, which does uh, a couple different things. But we have a few wine brands. My background is actually uh, in wine. I joke all the time that I've been drinking my way up the supply chain. Came out of the wine director side, moved into wholesale and importing. Uh, I kept getting drunk with winemakers until I accidentally became one, and then you know, eventually evolved into vermouth because vermouth is mostly wine. So that was kind of the full circle. But yeah, so I've been doing that for 
geez, ever since I got out of college in 16, so out of hospitality. And so, yeah, so like I said, a wine director's side, Italian imports, we were back and forth, uh, started spending a lot of time out here on the West Coast. We, I, when I was doing the wine director stuff and import stuff, it was in New York City, and then eventually it came out here. So that's the, the, the short version. <laughs> yeah, beautiful. Uh, so did you start out on the East Coast and work your way West? Is that how it happened? Yeah, pretty much professionally. I ended up all over. I, I, when I first got out of college, I, I honestly, you know, I graduated with a hospitality hotel degree. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Um, I thought there was a good chance I was just going to move to Costa Rica and work in an eco hostel and surf and work on my Spanish. And then I met uh, a master sommelier guy named Greg Harrington in a wine class at my school. And kind of, he was like, yeah, you know, I used to run for Wolfgang Puck and now I'm this master like sommelier and I'm consulting on like three different continents. And I was like, oh, I didn't know like wine could be a cool career like that and you could jet set and all that. And so I ended up landing, I grew up in Colorado, so I ended up landing there and I got my first gig ever because I had done a lot of handyman work to help pay my way through school and things. And so like, they were like, oh wait, you mean you can like help frame out the wall and plumb the ice machine? Like you're hired because they were literally building the store. So it had nothing to do with my wine chops or <laughs> anything with beverage. They were like, you can swing a hammer. That evolved into moving to the East Coast. I was looking for kind of the next thing was also chasing a girl that didn't work out, but uh, you know how it does. So I landed in New Jersey and opened a couple of shops called Cool Vines that did really well. And then from there, I met this guy named David Weitzenhofer and him and his partner, Laura, a business partner, had started this import company and they had worked for the Bastianich group. So Italian wine, that whole background, loved his portfolio and what he was doing. Um, was kind of looking for the next steps and, and ended up working for him for almost eight years. And they were very awesome. It was a very startup, small company. And like, they gave me a lot of freedom. So I, I never really asked for a raise. I just kept stealing time to do projects. So one of them became Iconic, which is now probably the biggest revenue driver for us, the wine brand. Um, but I also wrote a book about tattooed chefs while I was there and just kind of kept doing things. <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's a cool little uh, Instagram rabbit hole I was able to dive into when I was doing a little bit of research for this conversation. Um, last question about sort of like the deep background. Where did you go to hospitality school? I did a Cornell's hotel program. It was um, interesting. I, I mean, I learned a lot. Uh, I, it's funny that the school is very small for the campus. I think it's only like 300 students a year to graduate. And so they, they call it Statler High like high school and they actually you can't tell a bunch of hospitality kids a high school so they throw like a hotel prom and do superlatives and treat it just like a high school and i think i got most likely to never use my major i was like <laughs> teaching outdoor ed and going to welding classes mostly <laughs> nice nice all right so we've got sort of the trajectory which is you know working your way as you said up the supply chain uh now the anchor point of our conversation today. The reason why we're sitting here together in this digital recording studio is so that we can talk about these two bottles here in front of me. Uh, for those of you who were able to join us on the uh, the live stream here, although belated a little bit by some tech issues, we've got it up and running. We've got two bottles, Rockwell Vermouth. We've got a sweet red and we've got a dry style here. And the interesting thing about these is that you've got one sort of nucleus, which is the use of American or American style botanicals uh, in these that will 
get to, I'm sure, as we do a tasting here. I love the opportunity to do tastings on these episodes whenever possible. So we're going to do that. But can you just tell me how your brain and your attention and your focus shifted from wine to vermouth? Because you did mention that vermouth is mostly wine, but when you are deeply steeped in the wine industry, vermouth and other fortified wines, unless they are your specialty specialty, tend to kind of be like a a little sidebar. They tend not to be the main focus. So how did you turn specifically to vermouth from the larger world of wines? Yeah. So I think it's two, a couple different factors. It's never just one thing, especially something this niche So some of my winemaking mentors were dabbling in the vermouth world, um, particularly a guy named Dan Petrowski, who has a, a, another vermouth brand called Masakon Vermouths, which are awesome and definitely worth tracking down if you can get your hands on them. But it, and it's funny because his his current iterations of his vermouth, I think, were very different from the kind of prototype. So we, I actually recruited and brought his wines, the Masakon wine brand, to New York City to represent them. We did really well. He became friends. He actually became my mentor and, and consulting winemaker when I started Iconic. His first dabbling in vermouth was like single vineyard, 60-year-old vine, vintage dated, Tokai, Friulano vermouth. And it was just uber nerdy and intense. And you know, I thought it was so cool and I was kind of all in it. But I, I went out and, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. Sommeliers don't really seem to talk to bartenders. Like we're all in alcohol, but we're not. We're all kind of adjacent. We don't really seem to hang out at the same parties. And so I, I took this to a great bartender I knew that I had a relationship with. And he was kind of like, ah, like this is cool. It's a finished product, but um, I need salt and pepper. And I never thought of that as like, you know, in wine, we're bringing you a finished product every time. Like my, my kind of tired joke at this point is it's something like Moses with the tablets coming down. You're like, look at this thing I made. It is perfect. These are the commandments. Like, you know, don't touch it. We're like, you know, from a spirit side, uh, unless you're making like, you know, single malt whiskeys or some sort of very, very high end premium. If, if you want something in the well, you're building, you have to be a lot more humble. Um, you have to, you're, you know, you're building a nail or a hammer or a board or like, you, but something for other people to use. And you have to take your ego out of it, which is hard for us winemakers. That all kind of happened at the same time. I kind of always liked this idea of formulating something with native. You know, I started researching about vermouth and then my wife got pregnant with our first son. And um, I was drinking cocktails because I didn't want to open a whole bottle of wine. And then I like, the cocktails that I always just fell back into were like Negroni, Manhattan, Martini, like vermouth, vermouth, vermouth. I think at that point I was like, oh, I should give it a try. Like, how hard can it be? Turns out it's really, really hard. It took me like four and a half years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your your iterative process is something I'd like to get into. Can you talk maybe in the same breath about how you selected the American botanical as the driving force, if it is the driving force. Um, you know, maybe, maybe that involves telling us about uh, Artemisia California or Californica. Maybe yeah. that involves the story of why it's called Rockwell. I don't know. Just take us into it and give us a little bit more of uh, like what propelled you through that iterative process. Because as somebody who's also developed products using botanicals, it's a journey and there's got to be some motion or some, some, some energy propelling you through that journey. So, so describe the journey and the energy, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So the desire, it's funny. So again, with coming from the wine perspective and with iconic, like when I was a wine buyer, I would have California, like, and I was born 
here in California, even though I grew up in Colorado, but I'm a big believer in we have amazing terroir out here. You're always kind of comparing yourself to Burgundy or Europe or, you know, like you'd have these winemakers come in and be like, this is my Chateauneuf de Pop. And you're like, it's Santa Lucia Highland Syrah. It's not, it's not even close. Like, but it's great wine. Like, like, and it's kind of like, do you want to be, do you want to be a cover band or do you want to start playing something original? And, and we all kind of go through those processes whenever we're doing something creative. Even our first offerings here, the sweet and dry are iterative of things from Europe and you know, hopefully we'll, we'll continue to expand on that. But so that I, I kind of had that in the back of my head. And then, yeah. So when we started doing vermouth, I, I didn't necessarily come in. I liked the idea of native, but I didn't know. And you need something to compare. So I just started making tinctures. Everything we do with Rockwell is all tincture, high proof. And I just did, I bought everything. Like all, I went to the, all the vermouth books, all the recipes, because there's not a lot of information out there. So you start doing all the traditional ingredients and then you start going, outside of the box with everything I could find American. And the more I researched it, it's funny too. Like, you know, you have this vision of the guy in the South of France traipsing up and picking lavender and flowers off the hillside and shoving it into his wine and making vermouth. And like, it's all just BS and myth. Like most of the main ingredients in European vermouth come from the Silk Road and come from Asia. Uh, and it was a much more curative, like, you know, far mystic herbs that could cure things. And it's a more... Um, but it's not their terroir, really. It's not things that grew in their backyard for the majority of it. So, yeah, so this all kind of comes together. And, and eventually, while I'm reading, reading all this, uh, I found out, to me, like, the, 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 like, we're doing this, this is a brand. I was reading the regulations about vermouth in the EU, and it uh, blew me away that you didn't actually have to have wormwood in it to call it Aramiscus. That's what I've been told my whole career. Vermouth, wormwood, vermouth, wormwood. It's otherwise it's aromatized wine. This is what vermouth is. The differentiator is wormwood, and um, it's just not true. You have to have something from the genus Artemisia, which is actually a pretty big block of species. I think there's like 200 species. So mugwort is in there, is the common one. And I remember just googling like native Artemisia to North America, and the very first one that popped up is Artemisia californica, which is California sagebrush, which. I thought was a sage because that's its common name, but it's not, it's an Artemisia. And I just, my brain blew up because I was like, I knew that smell. I was like that. I mean, you talk about terroir, that is the smell of our coast. Like mm-hmm. anywhere from here all the way down to Baja. And then the more I read about it, the more you just absorb it. it it's endemic to California. It grows nowhere else in the world. It pretty much exclusively grows within 50 miles of the California coast. Yeah, it was funny. And now I've been foraging it for four years and we're working with some local farmers to grow it. But I always tell this story because it's before I learned how to do all that, I was like, I was like, oh, I know that smell, but like, will it make a good drink? Will it make a good tincture? Because things can go off the rails, even though you think like, you know, this, if you work with botanicals, like you'd be like, this is it. I found the ingredient. And then you start working with it and you're like, oh, this is horrible. Mm-hmm. So I ended up buying it on a Etsy shop that was like Wiccan spell casting because she was making like sage burning spell wands it was the only place i could find to buy it online (laughs) that's crazy that's crazy yeah i mean a lot of the art in creating flavor extracts because it seems like the way you know just to reiterate something you said earlier it seems like the way that you're going about creating this vermouth correct me if i'm wrong is by taking a wine base and then creating some flavor extracts using those botanicals various high or higher or lower, you know, depending on what you're extracting, you know, um, NGS neutral grain spirits, you suck the flavor out of those botanicals. You dump that into the vermouth. You adjust the ABV using 
you know, said NGS or said brand, you know, some, some winemakers in Europe use brandy, you know, so, uh, but you know, at the, at the end of the day, you're creating these flavors, you're putting them into the wine base, but you know, a lot of the art, as I was saying, kind of comes in when you say, all right, I'm going to take the flavor from this plant, Artemisia Californica. But then the question becomes like, well, how do you best get the flavor out of that plant? Um, so is, is there an answer to that? I mean, are you using the leaves? Are you using like the, because yeah. I know sage is like kind of a, it's, it's a little bit woody. So what, what part of it are you using? Yeah, exactly. That's, we, we are using tincture. We actually, it's, it's interesting because I actually, I started out using neutral grain spirit, but as we got through the certification processes and things, we realized, um, it's funny. So Europe and California or Europe and US actually have different rules. So we're considered a subset of fortified wine. So it's actually illegal for us to use anything but the spirit from the fruit. So I have to use grape spirit where in Europe, you only have to be 70% wine and you can be 30% anything else. So they actually have a much broader category to work with um, in terms of what they can fortify with and all that because it's a little chip on my shoulder that they have a bigger place to play but you know it's all good um, but yeah so and then in terms of the extracts every every single extract we make is different you know some turn bitter really quick particularly fresh green things um, where others you know we use um, sun-dried black mission fig and that takes almost six months of macerating so you have wow. everything from like half a day to six months is the spectrum and then, here, I'll show you. I, I grab these. I got visual aids since it's, I finally remembered to grab these. So you have kind of two, this is, so this is the plan. This is out of my backyard. I started growing them because I'm obsessed with it. Um, so this is a nice spring kind of growth. And I'll go down and do my, like, I do two forage trips a year. This stuff is real, as you can imagine, it's spring, it's young growth. It's not very tannic. Uh, it's very bushy, bright, de-stem all of it. If you go on Instagram, you can find videos of me trying to talk my kids into doing it because it's like picking buds you just sit for a day make yourself several drinks and pick all the stems out because the stems get really bitter uh especially early and then the plant actually has a second leafing so as it things start to dry and they flower so this is a, a leftover from the um fall harvest but you can kind of let's see if i can get it in here but you can kind of see the flowers themselves but yeah. they, have a, they have a very different aromatic so i actually make two different tinctures they're separated between the harvests and then there's a blend like right now that goes into the base but it's on my list when i start on you know my infinite free time but there's definitely going to be a day we do like a spring and a fall rockwell releases of like just the spring artemisia and just the fall artemisia um because they're, they're aromatically much different that's fantastic. Yeah, I love that. And and so what you're describing, I love that you come from the wine world because the more I learn about different spirits production methods, and I also got my start in wine. You know, I, I started by getting my WSET2 and, you know, learning all the basics about all the different regions. Uh, but the more you learn about all these spirits production methods and terroir in spirits, you learn that the most, I think, compelling stuff that's being done to push the limits of what spirits can be and how they can taste is terroir that's not necessarily soil terroir or weather terroir or even barrel aging terroir, although that, that is a very hackable and kind of, uh, playable system. To me, it's finding these little interesting like sub-terroirs where you take one plant from one area, right? Which we would consider like in the wine world, like a terroir, right? That like you've got it 
this uh, Artemisia californica grows roughly within 50 miles of the California coast from this section of California to this section. That would be considered like a rough terroir area. But then you identify, oh, all right, we've got, you know, plant has many different parts. So you've got these tender shoots that come out in the spring. They taste one way. And then as the plant kind of matures, you get the dry summer in California. And then you get the second leafing and flowering. You've got this whole different one. And you're combining these two almost expressions of the of the same plant to create some third thing that is not just the spring, not just the fall, but a culmination of the two. And to me, that's exciting terroir. That's terroir that couldn't have existed unless it was run through the filter of your brain and your creativity. And so that is the human element of terroir that really excites me. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And uh, I don't know if this would be a sensical time to uh, taste one of these. Yeah, for sure. I mean, jump into the dry because obviously the su- the sweet has between the caramel, sugar, and oleo thing. Um, there's still a, a very much a heavy backbone to the RDBC Californica and the sweet, but I think it's it's much much easier to pick up on in the dry. Excuse me, I left it on the counter. I'll be right back. Okay, uh, I just poured myself. Oh yeah, the aroma is already wafting up here. Hmm. Very distinct. You get, oh man, it's opening up tremendously. So my these bottles were not open. Uh, I had just cracked just cracked the seals on them, but I had not left them open. And one thing that I'm noticing just immediately is how this dry vermouth is going through so many different iterations of itself as it opens up. So many different things are coming out for me. Yeah, it's interesting. And I I apologize. I don't know because we just we're just transitioning from our first bottling to our second bottling. Is that the lot one or lot two that you just popped? This is the lot one for the dry. And I believe it's the, yeah, it's the same for the, uh, the sweet bread. Yeah. And so what's it, you know, like wine, you know, th- so this was bottled, um, July of 2020. Uh, we had spent, yeah. Like speaking of the other things besides herbs, like, you know, spent two and a half years, essentially it took me, I say it takes me about four and a half years to develop the recipe, but two of those years was kind of hobby two and a half of very serious product development. Uh, and we were getting ready to bottle in March of 2020 and launch the brand. So terrible timing. <laughs> so we delayed until end of July. And then I needed the tank. Honestly, we had most of it assembled and we just needed the tanks back because I needed to make wine in them. Sure. So we bottled and kind of been rolling it out. So, but it's been interesting to watch it develop. Um, Cause you know, the big boys, right. Martini, Dolan, all those guys, like, obviously there's, there's, it's funny, like I haven't gotten there yet, but like I almost it's like guy I meet like really nerdy psalms that age non vintage champagne. Like I'm waiting for the guys that are like, oh yeah, like we do we held back our vermouth or we age like and I think the dries in particular are just because there's less sugar in them and things like that. They they show their bottle conditioning more. Mm-hmm. So this one is um in a really the lot one is in a really cool place. It's lush, it's like just like a wine. It's, I think it's gotten a little bit broader shouldered. Um it's not as sharp. Uh, you compare a lot too, which, um, you know, it did some tiny, tiny adjustments, but I think the main difference when you taste these side by the lot one versus lot two is, is just, this has been 18 months in bottle and the other one's been in bottle for three weeks. Sure. And we don't always think about those kind of things. Mm. So what is the grape base used to make this? Is this a single grape or is this a, is a blend of different yeah, grapes that so you're using? Primarily, um, a grape called symphony. So it's a little bit cheating in, in my all native directive. And then it, it is a bit of spinifera, which is technically a, a European species, but 
Symphony is a, a UC, Develis, UC Davis developed hybrid. Um, it actually took the guy 30 years to develop the hybrid. Uh, and it's a, a cross between uh, Grenache Gris and uh, Muscat. So Muscat is what they use for Vermouth de Torino. So I kind of like that it had some parentage back to the, you know, the heart of Vermouth. But I liked it was also UC Davis and it's an American kind of invention. And as far as I know, there are no plantings of symphony outside of the state of California. So it is still kind of very much our grape. Uh, and it was cheap because that was the other thing. I wanted this to be at an ounce cost or that could be working the well. And that was a, another big, I would say like, you know, of the two and a half years of serious product development, probably a year and a half was recipe. And the other year and a half was figuring out how to make it affordable. Like sure. In, California at this scale. And so, yeah. yeah, Symphony was one of the big breakthroughs that was like checked a lot of boxes. I actually do think that it, it definitely affects the nose on the dry. Some of those really pretty like floral aromatics are from the wine itself. Oh yeah. It's, you can tell like this is immediately, you know, I, I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I'm talking myself up here, but I could immediately pick this out of a lineup as a winemaker's vermouth. Like the, the Symphony, I think it's a great name for the grape because it, I mean, Obviously, the aromatics play into this, but it really is somewhat symphonic in that you've got, you know, it does it doesn't surprise me that you've got the um, uh, what what it's the Grenache Gris and what was the other one? Muscat. Goes into, oh, Muscat. Yeah. yeah, it's got that it's got that mel it's got that Muscat melon on there. Like it's just melon and floral and you know sweet orchard fruit all over the place. But then it's got you know from from the Grenache Gris, it's got like, I'm guessing it's got some of the the slightly um, you know you you get into the a little, a little bit more acidity, uh, a little bit more mineral. And, yeah. uh, it's funny. I, I wish I, I wish it was that good. To be honest, I think that the minerality and the bitterness and things you, you is, is botanical driven. Um, I, I really don't like Symphony as a wine. I find it to be like, like Muscat is already over the top, um, and Symphony is kind of just right in that vein. It's just super unctuous. But yeah. you know, we're making kind of a high acid restrained version of it that then gets built. Um, but the, so I, it's funny. Yeah, it's interesting to. Again, like finding the right tools for the job. Like I'm not a big, like I don't, I would never release a symphony under iconic because I'm just not wild about the grape, but it's so good for the vermouth base. Like, so. Sure. Well, that's a great distinction then. So for those listening, basically Burke just clarified, I, I was, I was talking out of my ass trying to ascribe some flavor characteristic to the wine. Burke says not, nah, no, that's the botanicals uh, that we're using and I think that's a really useful thing to know. Like that's why that's why I like doing these with the maker because then my assumptions don't end up getting me in trouble. So let's talk about then, like what are the actual flavor characteristics that the Artemisia Californica and some of the other uh, flavor extracts that you're using uh, from the botanicals? What notes specifically are you sensing from those when you crack open a bottle of the Rockwell Dry? Because I remember when you initially mentioned the uh, California sagebrush, you were kind of like, oh, like how do I describe this aroma? So how would you describe it as it pertains to its role in this liquid? Yeah. it's a, I mean, the sage is such a such a driving character. I mean, the, those are familiar with wormwood. Wormwood can be very bitter on the palate. It's not arom aromatic. It doesn't think of that, but I'm trying to think of some common ones. Like to me, mint is kind of almost a spearmint character, but there's, there's obviously sage in it because I mean, there's a reason the common name is California sagebrush. Like it has this kind of sagey mint, but it also has a, 
if you're not familiar with it, it's really hard to describe it. It has a wormwood aromatic as well. Uh, it's just probably not a lot of people are cooking or smelling wormwood unless you're in the beverage business because it's not really a culinary herb, but it has that kind of aromatic as well. But I think those are kind of the big drivers. We kind of balance it. And then every, all the other kind of ingredients in here are um, more about kind of just background and lifting that, that, that kind of primary note. Uh, so we use a little bit of uh, sun-dried apricot, which is, again, a little bit of cheating in my rules, but we're, I'm working on playing and phasing in uh, pawpaw, which is our only native citrus in North America. Or not, that's not true, but the only one you can kind of regularly get. And even then, that's hard. But yeah, it's funny. This is, again, there's the, the creative in me, which will totally go off the rails. And then fortunately, I, my, I should give a shout out to my business partner, Carl Antelope, who um, is very good at kind of pushing me along. And I think at some point, you know, when we were recipe developing, we we're doing all this, we we're getting ready to launch. And he's like, he's like, hey, I just want to remind you that uh, we've spent more money on R&D for the vermouth than we have in the entire first year making wine. Um, so can you please release a product? <laughs> yeah. At some point, you just kind of have to be like, all right, let's, just, let's put it out to the world and hopefully it's well received and we'll, we'll, we'll go from there. <laughs> well, I mean, Papa is a very, very like frighteningly seasonal thing and that you've got like a week to, you know, get these things harvested and get them into something that you're going to use them for before they become unusable. So there's a, there's a really great spirit here on the East coast from Baltimore spirits company. They make a Pechuga style smoked apple brandy that they then throw into the pot persimmons and black walnuts and pawpaws in the style of a pachuga and they hang a, a Maryland ham in there. Uh, and, and that's the only way thus far that I've seen pawpaws used in the spirits world. I think there's a few folks who are looking to like create some hyper small production, like O de V's or, um, you know, kind of like flavored, flavored spirits with them, but I really haven't seen them used too often. So it'd be exciting to see them used in vermouth. And one thing I'm picking up here is that we've got, you know, in some of the extracts that you're talking about, we've got sun-dried black mission fig, we've got sun-dried apricot, and then we've got, you know, this idea for the pawpaw is the use of fruit or dried fruits in vermouths a super historical thing? Because usually when we think of botanicals in vermouth, at least I go straight to roots, herbs, and spices. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's, again, basically like most vermouth recipes are trade secrets, right? Like that's what there's this kind of, so there's a kind of a reason that there's not a lot of information out there, which is so funny from, Coming from a winemaker side, I find winemakers to just be incredibly open books. You know, they all have these little secrets here and there, but like for the most part, you can go and be, people are so good at sharing knowledge and so good at coming through. And then I kind of entered the vermouth world with that mentality and then was surprised by how little information I could find. And so then I had to go do it all myself. Now all of a sudden I'm becoming like my own hypocrite because now like it took me so long. And honestly, it, there are some, like it's, the, the hard part was that was the development, like some of the techniques and things we use are actually quite simple, but it's suddenly like, yeah, but it took me a lot of money in three and a half years to figure out how to make it simple. With that, I think there's a lot of that kind of holding tight to the chest. So there's a, kind of these common accepted ingredients that everyone in the vermouth world talks about. But yeah, I, I don't know. For me, you have to kind of go off your nose and your aromatic because people aren't talking about it. So I actually think um, you talk about citrus, particularly with like something like um, Carpano Antica, like to me that has a lot of orange in it like it's 
brimming with orange. Like that's like one of the three main flavors of that thing. It's like orange and burnt marshmallow essentially. Like, so yeah, I think that there's a lot of citrus that goes on in that. The interesting side from a chemistry standpoint, not to get too nerdy, but bartenders know this, like anyone that's tried to do a barrel aged cocktail in their house with citrus, it goes off the rails really fast because citrus is really prone to um, developing aldehydes, which have that sherry aldehydic character. And then it just, it's, it's not the drink anymore. And so particularly the hard part with Papa, like you said, is, um, I mean, that's almost me chasing a ghost is like, it's incredibly seasonal. It's ripe for like two weeks out of the year. You can't really use citrus fresh in the techniques that I want to do. Cause it'll still, even if you cover it in high proof, it still will go out of heating. So like now we're trying to figure out like once a year, I get to dry a little bit of pawpaw that I can get my hands on and try to go down this process. And like, so yeah, so like, I'm sure five years from now I'll nail it. And then I won't want to tell anyone what we're doing. Cause it took me <laughs> five years to figure out how to do it. I don't know if that's a good answer. No, no, it's well, so, I mean, I have seen in, you know, some of these older cocktail books where they, you know, tell you how to recreate something like an Angostura bitters where they'll, they'll say like, you know, macerate like a pound of raisins or something like that. So there is in the world of, you know, sort of, um, you know, manufactured complex alcoholic flavor ingredients like vermouth, like bitters, there is a precedent for the use of dried fruit. I just don't think that I've seen it used so heavily, but then sort of like, you know, the headliner really is the Cal the uh, Artemisia Californica. So I, I think that what it does is two things. One, it speaks to your, you know, your comfort as a winemaker working in the fruit flavor space, which is not something that again, like my brain doesn't go to fruity flavors and vermouth necessarily right away. So I think that's a really cool way to differentiate yourself. And then also you, you've kind of revealed like some, like you said, it was like maybe a hypocrisy, but I, I kind of, I kind of view it as almost like there's a couple of paradoxes going on here because you're trying to create something that is usable in the well at a friendly price per ounce Right. So uh, you're taking you've got your winemakers like perfectionist creative approach to creating this product that at the end of the day, as you mentioned earlier, needs to be not a finished product, but an ingredient like a salt and pepper type of thing. So what is what is the like rough price point where we're going to be seeing these bottles uh, in the bar? Yeah. You know, my hope is these are like fourteen ninety nine retail i mean we charge 15 bucks on the website for them you know that's i mean comparable to like sub ten dollar wholesale pricing in the well we don't own our own glass factory so and um you know i don't know how martini and rossi other than massive scale is able to get their stuff over here at like four bucks a bottle like i don't even know how you put water in a bottle like that and get it here for four dollars a bottle like but i still wanted something that was that was price competitive and added to the conversation. That was the other kind of side of this too, is like, like you said, there's a, there's a degree of, do you want to just be a cover band or, or can you add something? And so while these are very, the dry is very much modeled after, you know, classic French style dry martini, well vermouth, and the sweet is very much modeled after vermouth Trina sweet. I do think that these profiles are s slightly different and that's a good thing. This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. I've been a customer for about a year now, and I can say without hesitation that the delivery of frozen farm fresh meat that I receive from Adam and his team makes me do a little happy dance every month. 
Not only does Near Country offer grass-fed beef and pasture-raised pork, but they also have an awesome selection of chicken and seafood. And the best part is it's all local and it's all sustainably farmed and harvested. You can customize every order or simply leave the selection in their capable hands like I do. Near Country even offers fun add-ons like bones for soups and stocks, as well as special holiday offerings like turkeys, brisket, and more. If you live in the Mid-Atlantic, that's D.C., Maryland, or Virginia, and you're sick of the same bland selection at the grocery store, or you're looking to drastically improve the quality of the protein in your diet, Near Country Provisions has you covered. Head over to nearcountry.com and enter the code BARCART, all one word, when you sign up for your subscription to receive two free pounds of bacon or ground beef in your first delivery. That's BARCART, B-A-R-C-A-R-T, all one word, at checkout. This is easily one of the biggest quality of life improvements I've made in the last year or two, so I hope you'll give Near Country Provisions a shot and let me know what you think. Now, back to the show. You know, it's hard. It's been interesting, you know, anytime you're launching a new product, especially against, you know, the the behemoths, you know, to me, like I, I say the Holy Trinity, right, is, is Dolan Dry, Antica, and Copious Vermouth de Torino. Like you have those three in your bar, you're like, you can make almost every cocktail that you want. Like, sure. with energy, some Blanc has been coming on strong in the last few years. So to go into a room where there's really only three players um, and trying to add something new, uh, you know, you have to kind of like Pokey and all these guys aren't going to tell you the things I'm telling you, like, uh, in that, that sense, like their recipes are very secret and their techniques are very secret. So there's kind of this kind of like, I have to have the conversation and be willing to share some to even be part of the conversation. I don't know. That's right. It's fun. Hopefully, hopefully people agree. It seems to be going well. We're, we're like I said, we've sold out of the first batch. We're adding, I think seven new States for distribution with our lot too. Now that I have product back in stock and like, you know, it's been pretty well received accolade wise. So we'll just keep going. When I started winemaking 10 years ago, I always said, uh, I hated, I hate every one of my wines on release. Just each year, I hate them a little bit less. And now after like 11 harvests, I'm actually kind of like, it scares me, but I'm like, oh, geez, I've been doing this for 10 years. And now I'll release the wine. I'm like, I, I kind of actually like this on the first try. I think I'm getting better at this. And like, <laughs> but for me, it just like knocked me back again. Like all I can see is, is even for all of our successes, all I see that are flaws, you know, I'm like, ah, oh, we should have, you know, like, you know, that's what I mean by like, that's why we actually did the lot one, lot two, lot three. We didn't just start with a base product. So the, sure, you guys get to come on this journey with us. My dream is that we take the lot numbers off and we just have dry and sweet and I can build a fully consistent well product for folks, but I'm, we're not there. So they have to come along on the trip with us. Yeah, I mean that's that that whole thing is a process. Uh, I think I I hope that you'll I hope that you'll cut yourself a little bit of mental slack when you find yourself getting into those modes. But uh, I'm glad I'm glad that you brought up the the rock band versus the the cover band type thing because it, again it it goes back to that paradox of like do you want to be the you know you you say you want to be the well which would be the cover band not even the cover band the well would be the karaoke prog program that you could play on repeat forever and ever right like at that price point that's just a karaoke like poor cover of a, a beloved song but then you know you, you still want to be the rock band in terms of differentiation so i i love that i love that there are those two almost conflicting energies in this product and i say almost conflicting because i think what they do is you know 
they are they're they're almost balancing it's like when you know when when you get frustrated at the price point thing you know you can look at like all the cool things that you've done all the cool botanicals and processes that you've put into this bottle and be like yeah but at the end of the day like this is pretty interesting this is this is not the karaoke song and then you know if maybe you taste it and you're like ah oh, you know maybe there's this one or two you know little things that I wish I could have tweaked before we got this in the bottle, you can remind yourself like, ah, but remember we, we, we gotta be salt and pepper. Yeah. So and, I see the ba- I balance. We have, um, outlets too, for that too. Like, so we're, we just, um, I'm super excited, but we held back some of our lot too. And we're finally doing, um, starting our barrel reserve program. So we're going to start doing single barrel vermouths as a reserve. And those will be an outlet to I think, be more creative, uh, and maybe also, Produce the, produce the kind of vermouths that are maybe closer to a finished product. So, uh, like the boys at uh, Savage and Cook, I just picked up some of their um, freshly dumped bourbon barrels. And then there's a, an amazing distillery up in El Dorado called Dry Diggings. That's like the OG guy that basically makes all the brandies and stuff for all the El Dorado Hills wineries up there. But uh, friends of friends connected me with them, and we were able to get um, five year aged brandy. Um, so we just took our lot two, put it in a bourbon barrel, bumped the ABV all the way up to 23 and a half with five-year-old brandy. And we're going to barrel age that for at least six months, maybe a year. We'll kind of see it go from there. And same thing with the dry. We bumped it with a little bit of botanicals and then put it into some of my old Chardonnay barrels. And so, very nice. and then I'm, I'm trying to track down again, because it's native ingredient thing, but um, there's the whole bourbon barrel uh, maple syrups that falls so well because ma- maple's native. So yeah, I'm trying to track down some, X bourbon, X maple barrels to start playing with. Like you said, this kind of barrel terroir, um, but some layers to build some complexity and things off of that too. So I keep saying like my, my dream, if we do everything right is 10 years from now, we'll be like the Eagle rare of vermouth. We'll be like, yeah, you guys, you, can you commit to 20 cases of vermouth? Do you have that kind of program? Like come out, we'll just take through like a lot of rum barrels, a lot of tequila barrels, a lot of whatever I got my hands on. And like, let's, let's rifle through and find something fun and you guys can make yeah. your own apps. Like, that's awesome so that's a great even, mention. even in the business plan we're like i'm like shit now we got to set aside at least four or five thousand square feet for just barrel storage <laughs> but you know like that's how right. these things happen they don't they don't happen because somebody uh dreams it up and then doesn't act on it right <laughs> yeah it's uh sometimes i wish i could act faster but we always kind of just keep moving along you know we'll get there yeah well so i just poured a sample of the the red vermouth and I'll let you talk me through, you know, the the flavor profile a little bit. But one thing that strikes me is that I get a very different look at the California sage in this pour than I do in the dry vermouth. It is, I mean, I think just by the sheer nature of the fact that there's so uh, other flavors surrounding it, I'm getting a much deeper, almost like cedary aspect to the the sage as opposed to you know, what I got was more of like a minerally and minty deal going on in the dry here. I'm getting more of like a, an earthy, more cedary style of aroma. Yeah. I would say if I'm stand the music analogies, but like if like the, the dry, the sage is like the bass guitar solo where this is now, it's just the bass guitar and the suite, mm-hmm. like it's still part of the band and still very important, but there's a lot of things playing with it. Um, sure. And it's just because of sugar levels, uh, ingredients. It's funny. There's, um, and I mean, in terms of concentration, almost like five X the amount of tincture in 
the sweet as the dry as well, because you just has to bump up and play against all those other competing flavors to find that balance. So, you know, it's funny you call it red and it's the red label, but it's it's the same base wine. We use kind of the traditional style. So uh, it's still symphony. There's no red grapes. It's all white grapes, but it, um, any of the coloring, we don't use any artificial colors or anything, but we use um, burnt sugar syrup and it's all from the guys down at uh, Bitter Milk, if you're familiar with them in Charleston, but amazing company. You should give a shout out to those guys. I really struggled and struggled to f- try to do the, ca- the caramelizing components. I, re- I really wanted it to be natural and, and these organic sugars. Honestly, you just at some point you have to admit like there's something outside of your skill set. Uh, and they, those guys make an amazing burnt sugar syrup product and got a hold of them and got to talking with them. And Joe and Mary, uh, Mary Lee and I are like the sweetest people and they're another family run, you know, kind of startup style company. And so they, they're like, yeah, we don't really like doing this, but we'll help you out. And so they've been helping build these. So it's funny, long-term, uh, the plan is to bring all of that in-house, but it's some of these things at scale, like, like the reason I couldn't do it is I don't have the proper equipment. You just need certain commercial grade equipments to do these things. So they're creating a special cuvee of the burnt sugar syrup for us that goes into this. And uh, honestly, like more so than the symphony, because of the way they're doing that is another huge driving aromatic in the vermouth. And it's, it's fantastic. Um, and then obviously there's the black mission fig. And then the other one that I had the other two ingredients I give away are, um, and this also ties into knowing when you're outside of your depth. So the, the one extract I don't make in house is, um, we work with a company that does a single site, um, Mexican vanilla. There's like this one family run farm. It's a company that I, I connected with here in California. That's been making vanilla extract, like single site vanilla extracts for 200 years. Wow. Like they're really good at it. Uh, and I, same thing, right? you meet these people and you start talking and she's like, I know exactly what you need. She's like, and there's a huge argument for vanilla being a vehicle of terroir and, and where these things are. And this is a totally different profile from Madagascar or at least these other places. And so, yeah, they brought that component in and uh, that's actually a really, really small component, but I think it plays off of the sarsaparilla, which is the other one. I see. I, yeah, that's, mm, mm-hmm. so I that's that up. nice uh, earthy, that earthy note in there too. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. And I think people aren't used to picking out sarsaparilla. So I've, I've seen it a lot. I've seen people's brains, they smell it and they go mm, vanilla and you're like, oh yeah, mm-hmm. but no, there's a, there's a different layer in there and it's, it's kind of adjacent, but I think. Yeah, so it's it's the Artemisia, it's the burnt sugar, a touch of vanilla, but I think that's kind of background. And then the sarsaparilla, I would say, are the driving factors. Obviously, there's a lot of, there's like 12 other ingredients in there, but those, I would say, are the high notes. We launched a bitters flavor a couple of years back that was a very similar project in that it, you know, basically looked at North America and said, like, you know, the U.S., hey, we're sort of a, a nation of immigrants, uh, you know, the, the traditional melting pot metaphor that you always get. And as such, a lot of our flavors tend to feel or seem imported, right? And so the, the challenge for that was to say, like, all right, well, can we make a cocktail bitters that is, you know, uniquely North American, you know, besides our bittering agent, which is always going to be gentian. And uh, sarsaparilla was one of the the big botanicals that we keyed in on there. Uh, it's, a, it's a really fun note. I think that sarsaparilla is one of those flavors that tends to benefit a lot from having some sort of sweetness in in the conversation uh, because that's when you really do get that almost root beery flavor. Whereas in our bitters, since we don't sweeten them, it tends to be a little bit more of that earthy root like flavor. Here, it plays it, it it almost like is like 
going back to the music metaphor, it's it's almost like singing a duet with the uh, Artemisia in here in that I get that sage character and in the same breath, but in a very different way. It's almost like two sides of the same coin. You get that sarsaparilla. I think they're they're playing a really interesting little game in the glass here. And and the other thing I do want to note for folks who aren't joining us on the live stream, you know, we've got the you've got the color here, and it's definitely more on the brown sort of tawny side, almost like a, an oxidated. Uh, you know, like a, like a, like a Madeira or something like that, uh, as opposed to like a, a red, if you were going to uh, pour out like a, a pour of Dolan red or something like that, you'd get much more red here. This is much browner, more tawny. You get that burnt sugar syrup. So, uh, really, really beautiful. Uh, and definitely I see what you're talking about in the, uh, conversation with the, uh, the Koki. Yeah, no. And it's, it's, and Koki is admittedly a little bit more bitter. The, 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 the vermouth, the Torino Koki, a little bit denser um and i think that you know with our reserve programs and things we'll, we'll probably kind of play into that but again from a wall perspective like from our price point we, we can't age just to, that was one of the kind of commercial constraints of being able to hit our price point i mean it's funny because the tinctures are aged in fact we didn't even talk about this but um all of our tinctures that i've been building um are actually been doing a solera system which means like we only as we use them we only use part partials of them and then we keep making more so with every iteration, there's a portion of the tincture that will always be from the very first one. So at this point, we're now our, our tinctures are now five years, or at least a portion of every one is at least five years, and every year it'll be six, seven, eight. And so that's the other goal too: is, is as we continue to do the lots, each iteration will only be more complex as we age the tinctures. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so we'll get there. To me, so the other thing that we haven't really talked too much about, but a lot of the sweet vermouths are balanced with bitter, right? Um, they're very, very high sugar like we don't really like to talk about these things but like antigua's up around 180 grams per liter i mean blew me away because i honestly the early iterations of the sweet just were never right and i was i was playing in the like 60 70 grams per liter and i finally just got really frustrated and i went and bought dolan and antica and all these guys and i sent them to this amazing lab here in california and spent a lot of money to just get like the ph and the sulfur levels and the sugar levels and you know, i dropped like four grand on lab tests just wow. to start to wrap my head around that. And, um, you know, always, always with the exception of Dolan, all of them come back like well over 150. I mean, Punta Mesa is like 220 or something. And it was just like, oh. So I just went back to my first recipe and doubled the sugar. And I was like, oh, this is way better. Yeah. <laughs> like, there you go. I'm making a cake with no sugar. Like, you know, it's just, but, you know, we wanted a little bit less than that. And so long and short, we sit right around like 130. And the other balancing component, in addition to bitter, and, and this is just maybe I can't get away from being a winemaker, but um, is acid. I think that our our sweet is balanced with a much more kind of bright acidity component than a, a darker bitterness component. So you still don't notice the level of sweetness, but there's a, a brightness to these. And again, you know, do you want to be a total imitation of a market lead product, or do you want to do something that you know is is true and hopefully gives you know like I don't expect anyone to take Koki out of their bar and replace it with Rockwell. Like that'll never happen, but hopefully this can sit next to it and it can be another thing. I think for, there's something about it, but um, like, I think it, our Rockwell plays particularly well with, with a Boulevardier in, in bourbon, as opposed to a Negroni. I, I still think it makes a strong Negroni, but I think it makes an excellent Boulevardier. 
Uh, and it's just something about the way the bourbon plays with that and giving guys another kind of tool to use. Sure. Absolutely. And, you know, the, I mean, it could be something as simple as, you know, the burnt sugar and sarsaparilla notes in the Rockwell are marrying better with the, you know, barrel notes of bourbon and the, you know, if you were to, you know, compare to Koki that, you know, some of those more bitter notes in the Koki might accord better with the juniper in a gin, you know, it could be as simple as that. I'm glad that you pointed out the acidity thing because I, I think that I was just drinking it and being like, hmm, really nice and balanced. I don't know that I was thinking hard enough about it to be able to recognize that that balance was coming from acidity as opposed to bitterness. So that's a really good call out. Yeah. And not to say that there isn't definitely a bitter component, but like, I mean, for me, what I love about this, and again, I think it's the winemaker side, but, um, you know, I'm sitting here now, like you take a sip and you sit with the sweet vermouth, you're salivating. Like that's the the weird sign of acid. You don't notice it because it's sweet, but like that's why it's not cloying, right? It's refreshing the palate because there's that acid component behind it, um, and it's not like if you if you took 130 grams per liter of sugar and water and drank it, you would just feel like you couldn't get it off your teeth. Um, but you need that acid component, that saliva component, to kind of all mix on the palate. Right, and I think I mean as you say that, it occurs to me like. You know, in Europe, they have a strong vermouth culture for the sake of sipping a glass of really nice vermouth. And again, maybe those vermouths that they're sipping in Europe are closer to the finished product than they are to the salt and pepper, maybe closer to what you were describing with your barrel program. On the other hand, you know, I think about just drinking, I'm drinking these straight out of the bottle and warm, partially for sensory evaluation purposes. Um, But yeah, I, I mean, I could see having a glass of this as opposed to, you know, some of those with the with the higher sugar contents. You know, I I don't I could as much as I love Carpano Antica in certain cocktails. I'm not going to drink a glass of that. That that sounds actually <laughs> aversive, and yet I love it so much in certain drinks. So I, I think it's an interesting thing to pull out because if the if there's a paradoxical project with trying to be both a salt and pepper style product and a rock band versus a cover band, I think you need to be able to identify which hairs you're splitting here. And sort of the hair that I'm seeing being split right here is like, hmm, like, yeah, this is going to be sitting in the well, but because of the way I played with the sugar content, you know, trying intentionally to avoid being super high sugar and also balancing it out with some of that acid, you could actually sip this and enjoy it and have that salivation come in and, you know, rescue the mouthfeel from just being a a complete sugar bomb. So I, I think that like my big takeaway from hearing you talk about the brand story, the development process, and then actually guiding me through the flavors in these glasses is that like that moment where you dropped all that money on having these other market leading vermouths analyzed in a lab. Like, yeah, I bet that hurt. Like that hurt the bank account, especially because you didn't know what that return on investment was going to be. And you're still working on the return on investment from a unit economic standpoint in terms of bottles turn, but the return on investment is right here in the glass in front of us. It is a vermouth that you can sip that you can't really say for most other vermouths that are sitting on the shelf within five or $10 of this price point. So I think that that's a victory. Cool, man. That means a lot coming from you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I'm just a guy who tastes things on, on, on air. Uh, yeah, but, that, uh, it's, funny. It's, it's been an interesting couple of years. Cause like I am, I would 
thought it's in, and I appreciate you having me on because it's, and also like, I should say this to folks that are listening, like, please reach out to me and have the conversations because for the last two years, I haven't been able to, I thought I, what we are doing now, I was going to get to go sit at a bar and, and do like when we launched Iconic, especially in a couple of years when we started to scale it, you know, I traveled, I like rebuilt the wine brand because I went all over the country. I, I tell a story that I, there were parts where I like, I had no money. Like we, I would in an expensive market like DC or something, like I'd rent a car, sleep in the parking lot of a 24 hour fitness in the back of the car, go up, pretend like I just moved to DC and ask if I could get a free day pass to try, take a shower and then drive over and meet the sales rep and start selling wine again. My wife likes to remind me that we have budget uh, hotel hotel money now, so I don't have to do that anymore. But we're still not, you know, we're not Diageo. Um, <laughs> You're budget hotel rich. Yeah, exactly. I get to sleep in a bed these days. Ooh. All right. Uh, but like, I just thought like, that's that's how I knew to build a brand. And I, I couldn't wait to go out and have these conversations with Rockwell. And then obviously the pandemic hit. And then it was just like, Ooh. like I said, it, it's been really great because like the vermouth seems to be well-received. It seems to be selling. We're seeing reorders. But I, I, I don't know what people are doing with it. Like, you know, there was some place in upstate New York I just saw. We just launched there. And like, I think they ordered like 10 cases of sweet vermouth. And I was like, what the, f-? like, what are you doing? Are you, did you make a bathtub? Like, what are you doing with that much vermouth in like a week? And I never found out. I don't know if they made a cake with it or there was like, they was cooking with it or like, so, you know, particularly now that it's a tool, right? Now that it's a component for folks, I'm so curious to know what people are doing with it. Um, and so, yeah, please guys play with it and tell me, I would love to hear what, because I'm sure like releasing this into the world, someone's going to come up with something that I never, ever would have thought of as a use. And it's going to be so cool when I like hear about it. Yeah. Well, I do. So we, we should get to cocktails right now, uh, because we're running, we're running a little bit behind and a little bit over. I've got, uh, a little, little, how the sausage get, gets made. My, my wife, my, my baby and our dog are out on a walk right now. So I got to, at some point with all three of our sons. So I'm sure she would be stoked to get back. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So let's, let's, uh, let's do our wives the respective favor here. Uh, but can you just like hit some highlights of like cocktail applications? Like just give us one for the dry and one for the red that you've been super stoked to see. Like you thought were very creative and a great way to approach this as a product in the glass. Cool. Yeah. I'll give you, um, I'll, I'll try to get to it, but honestly, like these were very, very much made with like a two to one classic martini in Manhattan in mind. Um, thank you. Thank for, you for the, acknowledging the, that a classic martini in Manhattan are two to one. Um, that is so rare. <laughs> that is so rare that somebody says a classic is two to one, which is correct. Please proceed. Uh, no, I just, um, there were, when we were recipe developing, I would make batches and then I actually had everything to talk about market leads. I had like, Jack and makers and on and, and all the market lead browns and all the market lead like vodka and gins. And like, I wouldn't just make a batch of vermouth and taste it. I would make a batch of vermouth and then I would sit there and make five different Manhattans with all the market lead. So like I would take five different gins. Like, so while they might not be exactly what you're used to versus Dolan versus Antica versus this, I still think that they make those drinks very well. The one I would say out of the box that I wasn't expecting that, um, I've been drinking a lot lately has been, um, like a kind of a riff on a hanky panky, but with barrel aged gin. Again, maybe I guess maybe it's a barrel program that seems to play so well with Rockwell. But we do a little like the Fernet Francisco to support the local guys, and then fifty fifty barrel aged gin and Rockwell, uh, and it's excellent. Um, Very nice. From, um, or you could do since it's ten a.m. here. I've been doing a 
um, Americano. I'm double fisting Americano and coffee right now. <laughs> Which is actually surprisingly not doesn't sound all that bad. Uh, it brightens up the coffee a little bit and uh, darkens the Americano. I, I can see those being in, in conversation. Uh, but I will say you have a really nice cocktail section on your website. So even though we don't have time to dig into the cocktails super hard, I will link to that in the show notes page, modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. And for and everybody, I want to credit really quickly. I apologize. Um, it's, it's the guy named Thomas Curtis, who's a, an amateur cocktail historian who has an amazing little app called vintage american cocktails vac that does all of that he and i connected on instagram and he's he became a huge fan and i applaud like i actually am way way past due on like putting him on the website but all of our classic vintage cocktails um came from all of the research that he did uh, and helped us put that together so i just i want to give him a shout out just because um like i said it, it, he deserves some credit and you, should, you guys should check that stuff out but start with our website and go to him because he has everything that isn't vermouth as well Totally. We will, we'll link that up as well. And, uh, one, one cocktail that maybe we'll feature it, uh, for the featured, uh, cocktail for this episode, the chrysanthemum, that's, that's a drink that when I see that on a menu or when I see that drink reference, I'm like, mm, those people know what they're talking about. Those people <laughs> are in, in this to win this. So for what it's worth, uh, so Burke, can you just, as we wrap up here, tell us where your stuff is on the market, um, where folks can buy it from either liquor stores or um, if we have some on-premise folks listening, where they can grab it for their bar program. And I suppose as a little writer, I don't know if you were, if you guys are doing e-commerce at all, uh, but yeah, any anywhere people can get these bottles. Uh, we are very fortunate in that we are classified as wine and not a spirit. So direct sales is, is quite easy for us. So literally, um, you can go on our website. It's 15 bucks a bottle or you can order it. We do uh, free shipping on four bottles. Um, so 60 bucks, you can get too sweet, too dry, free shipping door to door. And honestly, I, I've given, I haven't updated it since we got our new shipping rates, but I probably lose money on that deal. But we just wanted people to have an opportunity to try it. Um, so if you can't find it in your local market, you can always buy it direct from us. Um, and then, yeah, we're, we're expanding. Uh, we're in, I don't know. We're launching in Colorado, Ohio. We're in Illinois. We're in New York. We're here in California. We're still missing a few states, a big ones, like unfortunately, DC, Virginia. If you know a good distributor, Florida is, is still coming along, but we'll be there. I would say by the end of the year, like our, our wines are already in 40 states. We're in probably 15 states with Rockwell. So if, yeah, if you guys are a bar manager and you're interested, shoot me a text. I'll connect you with who our local distributor is if we can. And if not, I'll send you some bottles. You can try it That's anyways. Great. You can beat up your distributor about getting it in. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Well, uh, yeah, maybe you and I should talk offline so we can see more of these uh, more of these bottles here in the District of Columbia. But uh, ready for a couple of quick lightning round questions as we wrap up? Sure. All right. What's your favorite cocktail? If you don't have a favorite of all time, what's something you've been most recently obsessed with? I think I still got to just say Rye Manhattan. I'm like old and grumpy, but I, it's like a warm blanket. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, any preference for a rye like under your head right now? What would you reach for? Uh, I, I kind of jump around. Uh, I think Templeton's in my bar right now. Um, nice. Solid, but yeah. Yeah. You should grab some of that Redwood Empire stuff. That's, uh, they are legit. Coast. Actually, those guys are killing it. I should have thought of them. Yeah. The local yeah. guy shout out, but those guys are doing a great job. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Shout out to Lauren. Who's, uh, who's doing work out there right now. Um, if you could have a cocktail with anybody in the world, past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you drink? Just paint us a picture. Uh, uh, Stanley. 
Uh, I don't know if you guys noticed on Iconic, but we use all comic book artists. I'm a giant nerd on that. And I, I mean, I, I would have a drink with him anywhere. Uh, but that dude, in terms of like what he added in terms of in his legacy, uh, plus I just think he would be really funny to get drunk with. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's actually really revealing. Uh, I, I love that, that you've got that comic book kind of approach to this because, you know, in terms of a serial release, you know, the, the, and it, with an evolving story and flavor profile, you know, even though, you know, you've got the same comic, the same, you know, base hero, you might say you've got, you know, you've got a story that kind of evolves over time. And I, I kind of see that serial nature of comics and the serial nature of these batch releases that you're doing as a somewhat similar project. So it doesn't surprise me that that sort of artistic, uh, flair is something that you latch onto. Yeah. No, he's, um, I, I love the story just briefly that he like Marvel never was a success until they started writing the comics that he wanted to write. Like when he finally was put in charge, Marvel was about to go out of business. And then, and then he was like, I'm going to go write the things that no one would let me write. And now look at where they are. So I love that idea of like, you know, not necessarily listening to people that say you can't do something, uh, just going for it. Well, I can't think of a better note to wrap this on. Uh, Burke, can you just share with our listeners how best to get in touch with you and your brand on the social medias and uh, any other way you wish to be contacted? And uh, yeah, just give us give us the handles. Yeah, uh, I mean, at Rockwell Vermouth, uh, rockwellvermouth.com, the, the contact form and the message. Uh, I think there's even a phone number on the Instagram that if you text that, we'll ring the phone I'm talking to you on right now. I'm, we're small. And easy to get a hold of, and uh, I love to hear from folks. Uh, good or bad feedback. We're we're still evolving, and um, you know, like I said, until we're back at a point where we can all hang out drinking, standing up in a room together, like this is that way is the best way to have any kind of communication. Amen. Well, we will have links to all this and so much more over on the show notes page at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. Thanks to everybody who joined us live. Uh, Sorry for the slight delay, but that's just how it goes. You know, we're small as well, trying to figure this out. And uh, Burke, most importantly, thank you so much for your expertise, for the awesome juice that we sampled and for being a guest here on the Modern Bar Cart podcast. Thanks for having me. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Barcart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And... 
keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed. Vermouth samples and insights courtesy of Burke O'Halloran, creator of Rockwell Vermouth, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2022.